Welcome to season seven of the Leadership Educator Podcast, your source for knowledge and expertise on facilitating leadership learning. Are you passionate about leadership education? Do you want to expand your resource toolbox with practical strategies for teaching, learning, and program design? Then this is the podcast for you. If you haven't done so already, please hit subscribe so you'll never miss an episode. and welcome to the Leadership Educator Podcast. I am Lauren Bullock, Assistant Professor of Instruction at Temple University. And I'm Dan Jenkins, Professor of Leadership and Organizational Studies at the University of Southern Maine. And we are very excited about this episode of the Leadership Educator Podcast. So today we're joined by the newly crowned ILA Lifetime Achievement Award winner, Dr. Susan Kamavez. Welcome to the show, Susan. <laughs> Thank you. Newly crowned. <laughs> Newly crowned. So, so you were honored at the International Leadership Association Global Conference uh, just just last week from when we're recording this this award program that honors individuals who've made a significant lifetime contribution to the field of leadership uh, through their published works and their influential support of leadership knowledge and practice. And each honoree is presented with uh, ILA's Lifetime Achievement Award at the conference and has their work celebrated there. And after the conference, recipients are added to the ILA Virtual Hall of Fame, right? To share a little background, um, and I'm sure you will correct us if we're wrong or, or fill us in, but what we have uh, provided to us here is that, so Dr. Kamavez uh, is Professor Merida in the Student Affairs Graduate Program at University of Maryland. She's also past president of the Council for the Advancement of Standards in Higher Education and of the American College Personnel Association, or ACPA. Dr. Kamavez served as vice president of both Stevens College and the University of Tampa. She's co-author and co-editor of 16 books or and monographs, and she was a member of the teams that wrote uh, Learning Reconsidered and the ensemble that developed the widely used social change model of leadership development. In 2014, she became the founding executive editor of the New Directions for Student Leadership series, a quarterly monograph from Jossie Bass and Wiley Publishers. She was a founding co-principal investigator of the International Multi-Institutional Study of Leadership, PI for the widely used leadership identity development grounded theory, and co-founder of the National Clearinghouse for Leadership Program. She was also chair of the ACPA Senior Scholars, a senior scholar with the James McGregor Burns Academy of Leadership, a NASPA faculty fellow, and a board member of the Board of Directors of the ILA. Uh, she was, has consulted in leadership or student affairs in Canada, China, Japan, South Korea, Taiwan, and Qatar, just to name a few. Um, Susan, congratulations again. Thank you so much for joining us today to reflect on the special experience of this year's conference. Well, thank you. I'm, I'm still just amazed <laughs> and enjoying every moment of those four or five days. Oh, well, it's awesome. It was it was awesome to like witness all of the love and genuine joy people had for you. Like, I didn't know if people knew you or not, but it just seemed like everybody was your friend and everybody loved you and you loved everybody else. Like, it was just so nice to witness all of that love and joy. And we're going to ask you about that in a minute. But the first question I have, we know the answer to this, but can you share with our listeners how you got involved in ILA to begin with? Yes, although you have to even try to remember that. Um, the, there's probably two answers to that. One was um, I was at the University of Maryland 
have moved from there now in retirement, but was there for 25 years and still aligned with Maryland. And at the turn of the century, um, <laughs> the, the uh, Center for Political Leadership and Participation that Georgia Sorensen had founded changed name and focus. And uh, she was able to bring in James McGregor Burns as the named person for the Leadership Center. And Burns was there three weeks or so every semester, and we got to engage with him. Uh, early on in the center's founding, and I don't necessarily know the origin story in the detail for ILA that you would want to ask others, like, and of course, Georgia's deceased, but Barbara Kellerman was there on uh, an alignment with the center, and they had a big Kellogg grant that brought in amazing people. I remember, well, this is a bigger answer than you asked for, but uh, it was really amazing things to talk about. I got to go be a fly on the wall watching the interaction with Joe Rost and Bernie Bass and um just all kinds of amazing leadership scholars talking about meeting each other for the first time in some ways. And out of that grew a we should, the, them saying, we should, as leadership scholars whose work we each read but don't know each other, form a community. We should be a, a community of scholarship for leadership that otherwise we may be the lone voice in our political science association or our sociology association or our psychology associations so this was a need that those scholars found met it was palpable to watch from the first meeting where there was more establishing position and jockeying for who was who to the second meeting where they were greeting each other with hugs and so glad to be back together. So ILA with Sin Cherry, I don't know how Sin got aligned with it, so that's a good question to ask someone, but ILA with Georgia and, and Kellerman's and other people initiative hosted a meeting. Um, well, ILA was formed in another meeting of scholars out in California. I, I did not go to that one, but they decided to form this association. And in those first couple of years, it certainly grew with its mission then to be the an association for those involved in the theory and practice of leadership. So it broadened right away to say there should be practitioners from all over the world, NGOs, uh, community agencies, activists, et cetera. And um, I did start attending then early on and about the fourth or fifth ILA, again, I didn't look this up, so I don't know the number. I was asked, they, they had a concept they called being a weaver and that they intentionally asked someone that whoever in, did this invitation thought could, could listen and keenly observe what was going on at that conference and make reflective statements at the beginning of every plenary session about what this person was hearing or seeing and tweak the audience to listen to each other more keenly, uh, to discuss some of those observations in their own sessions. But the idea would be to make it a thoughtful and mindful practice that we were there together and let's try to connect the ideas instead of them being in isolation. If you went to a particular program, you got a good idea. If you went to another one, you got a good idea, but those two may never discuss each other or be in the same space. So how could that be more intentional? So I agreed to come and be the weaver, which was pretty phenomenal and heavy responsibility. It has taken on different kind of connotations over time or different applications. But at that point, I had the whole final session myself to present like a 45 minute kind of thing on what I observed and what I thought our messages were um, to each other and for each other and for leadership. And sitting in the audience there in front of me is James McGregor Burns. I'm going, oh, right, I'm telling James McGregor, Jim Burns. 
uh, about this. But it was it was a more and more focus on the weaver than I certainly see as the association has evolved, and that's probably appropriate. But anyway, so my early on involvement was uh, seeing it founded at Maryland. The second thing I was going to say was I always have been a fan on looking for delivering what we do and the sustainability of delivering things through associations. Associations have a life usually beyond all of us and persist over long periods of time. Doesn't mean some don't go out of business like American Association of Higher Education did, which I was sad about, but they do persist over time. So I've always believed in if you can establish structures and spaces for things to happen, then they will evolve and sustain themselves and grow and develop. And that's a good place to think of um, uh, hosting the work that we do so that it continues. So I was very excited when ALE formed, for example, and I was an early on member from the first year, been a dues paying member of Association of Leadership Educators from the beginning, and then worked with the journal as they were establishing Joel was on the management editorial board for the establishment of the journal. Wonderful ways to continue both our scholarship as well as a community of practice. And is important to me in ALE that there be space for um, other leadership educators that certainly their title says that. And they've been very welcoming of others like student affairs people and others who do leadership education. Although ILA then is the broader, more international group and tries and fits a different niche. So my involvement goes back to early years, and I have gone to uh, almost all the ones in the United States and the ones in the two or three in Canada and London, but I have not been to a lot of the international ones. Thanks for sharing that kind of the evolution of of that and and your various roles you've played. And I think it's it's interesting to hear you reflect on the role as a weaver because that was so evident in your presence at the conference last week because of you, you know it's interesting like all you know all uh individuals just kind of like convening and coming together from you know whether their home association if you will was the ILA and some people don't get to go every year or what have you, you just shared that you know sometimes it's hard to get if it's in Europe or or wherever but folks came together because of the community that you had helped to to co-create to not only be with each other like you said the hugging and the reunions and and what have you but also to to celebrate some of the connections that, that you had helped to kind of forge with them and, and for them and around them. And I, I wanted to point to something that you mentioned when you were accepting the award last Sunday was that you were so, you you mentioned specifically how pleased it was for you that the word co was brought up multiple times, that co-editing, collaborating, being a part of ensembles and and groups and, and co-authoring things and co-creating things and just how important that has been to you as an individual and as a professional. And it, it was everything that I had the opportunity to, any chance I had to, to be around, you know, you and events that were honoring you during the, the conference, it was clear that everybody was just, it, it's, a, it's a community. It's really, it's really a special thing that has been curated through your keen sense of bringing people together to push the field forward. I don't know if you'd be willing to just share a little bit more about that, but it's so interesting to see how folks just gravitated around and wanted to be around not just you, but the the spaces and, and kind of community that you had built over the last 25 years in particular of your career. And you know, what was so touching to me was for people to put words to that, like the things you just said, for people to say in those public settings, 
because you do did it this way. I have a network yeah. of people now that I am um, so engaged with advancing scholarship and practice. And, and it, that's always been important to me. You know, I told that story of the posters that were all found in the basement that had belonged to my, that was at the morning session. So Dan, I know you were in a concurrent session at that time, yeah. but so you may not have heard that story, but I, and I won't dwell on it, but one of the posters from my first year at Florida State University, and all three of us are FSU alumni, I might add. That's right. In my first year at FSU <laughs> was a Japanese proverb, and it said, none of us are as smart as all of us. And that that was really like, you know, nowadays people do these, write a letter to your former self and what you'd like to tell your former self, like chill out and everything will be okay and all that. And it, it was the reverse. It was my 18-year-old Susan saying to my now 76-year-old Susan, but at the time Ralph found these, I was probably about 60. But um, this poster from when I was very young was that there are more voices to hear. And some of this was the women's movement at that time with me saying, I, as a woman, want to be in those spaces and heard. And we, as women, need to be included. And certainly the civil rights movement was going on. And so we have different voices and cultures and races need to be included. So that idea of inclusion, because you're going to get a better outcome, was evident to me and I saw that happening in student government at Florida State and where we involved more people you had more buy-in and things were were happening and that was good academe just about can squelch that out of you if you're a faculty member in academe you're supposed to show your independent your individual ability to do everything and I can understand in the faculty tenure process that, that I went through at, at what 47 years old or something, but I can understand in that process that you have to demonstrate you can do research and that you know how to guide and direct studies and that your work is of substantial impact enough to get published in, in the good outlets and all that. And it, but it begins its own negative cycle of if you do too many co-things, you might even get critiqued by your colleagues is not doing enough independent. I hope that's shifting a lot. But it was very apparent to me early on that uh, co-creating things with students in the classroom, so they did several of those books, and co-creating projects, it was all a better way to go because we got better outcomes and more good brains brought to the same challenge. So I I, it was really, I, I would say it was really on the spur of the moment um, after hearing what wonderful Barbara Crosby said in her acceptance, but by the idea of the co, I saw so many people sitting out there in the audience that had been co-editors, co-authors, had chapters in some of the many books that we have done and that recognizing them because we have advanced the leadership education field together uh, was a real honor for me. So uh, to have that observed was lovely and uh I also am so tickled the National Leadership, um, the National Clearinghouse for Leadership Programs has set up an award in my name, and it's for people who um, are known for doing excellent collaboration with others to advance the field of leadership education. And I couldn't be more tickled with anything to say we want to, we might be awarding an individual, but it's because they're collaborative. And I think that's very meaningful. Yeah, that was interesting when you were sharing that, and then you reminded me of it as with what you just shared is I was talking to some, uh, I was sitting at a table with a bunch of the students from my institution and just not to, to brag a little bit, we had 18 students from University yes. of Southern Maine that were there and what a fantastic conference for them to uh, to be a part of most students we've ever had at a conference before. And, you know, they were asking me about one of the PhD students turned to me and said, well, you know, you know, I've heard you all, this is a third year student. You know, and she said, you know, I've heard you all talk about, you know, tenure and promotion requirements. And she's like, well, how does that affect that? And I said, well, you know, it's really up to these new leadership 
departments, leadership organizational study, whatever we want to call ourselves, and the names vary across you know, the U.S. In, in particular, but also abroad. But what we value in our tenure and promotion requirements within each department needs to, I mean, I feel it needs to value co-authored pieces, collaborations, right? I mean, there are institutions and for whatever the reason is, they're looking for, oh, how many first author pubs do you have? Or how many single author pubs do you have? Like if we're valuing that more than we're valuing collaboration, we're, we're shifting a culture, right? We have an opportunity, you know, this is me, I guess, like screaming from the top of the mountain around my soapbox, but like agreeing with you that like we should be, I think we should be valuing collaborative projects more so as long as you're still contributing to the scholarship right like who cares if you're the first author or if you're the if it's a single author piece like it's actually more important to to collaborate and i've um and i think maybe i've just been engrossed in this culture but it really felt it felt very natural to me to fall into that and to hear you put a check mark on that it was was really helpful as i think of, of someone who you know i've looked up to to um inspire collaborative projects in my in my career as a faculty member well, thank you. You know, and let, let me make a comment to kind of marry the two topics together. You asked me about ILA and then about the, the that aspect of the award on Sunday. And another thing that strikes me is ILA certainly staked out its primary mission to be the advancement of theory and practice. And I also wanted to make the comment that in between that is the gap where education occurs. Theory doesn't become practice without guides and educators and mentors and facilitators and uh, people who are intentional about developing that in individuals, groups, organizations, coalitions. And I think it's real important that that in, I am in, in some ways a symbol of the leadership educators in ILA who abound in ILA, but haven't necessarily had that recognition like happened on Sunday with me and Barbara. That's a very interesting point you make. And, and it's it's wonderful because as someone joining in the more recent years, like in the last 10 years, I feel like that's the norm, the theory and practice. Almost a, it, like I was talking with my students about, uh, interestingly enough, I was talking to them about COVID transition. And I said, I felt more comfortable with transitioning at the start of COVID because I knew a lot about change management and knowing in change, you know, you don't just put change and you need voice for people and you need to explain and, and be considerate and like, like all of the things I knew about leadership prepared me to make that change. So I feel like now those of us that are newer to the field are, it's ingrained and automatic. It doesn't even have to be said. And, and it's so lovely to hear that. And also though, your earlier comments about collaboration reminds me of something Dee Chanu said in your panel when we were talking about leadership. And someone said, you know, I, I want to do this work, I want to do this specific methodology, but it won't get accepted. And he was like, well, be the reviewer. And so I wonder if, it, and it stuck with me because it, it made me think about if we want to change all of these things, we need to get in these spaces and then make those changes. So Dan talked about, you know, the collaboration being valued. We'll be on the tenure committee or be a part of that process or be a mentor when you can so that we can start to change those things. And so it like I feel like for the last week, I keep saying be the reviewer. So I got to send an email to V and just share with that. It stuck with me. He said it and then left for the airport. And so <laughs> I really, it, that's how you drop your mic. Drop right? the mic. Right. Yeah. But here's my comment. And I got to go because he said, I got to go because American won't like let me fly later on later than 11 today or something like that. So 
But I think yeah. what we're all saying, you know, I think about the book like that Julie Owen, my co-editor and I are doing that's coming out with Edward Elgar Press that looks at uh, social uh, leadership education and a research agenda for leadership education that we framed around equity and social justice principles. And it, it's what we're trying to do in that too is interrogate what the way things have been need to be re-examined and as Dugan has done, you know, deconstruct and reconstruct and as critical approaches would do. And we need to do that around the tenure and promotion processes on campuses. We aren't the first to say that by any means, but the publishing field is going through an interesting time right now where we need to be doing it in the field of publishing. This like open, like I mentioned in that program, open access is a wonderful concept for articles where you can just get anything that you need and knowledge is shared, but not when you have to pay $2,000 per article or something to have yours be put into an open access system and how the equity in that is going to exclude scholars who don't have grants. There are publishers who are looking at other approaches for those who aren't funded and institutions looking for ways to advance their faculty scholarship in open access platforms where there's not grant funding, but it's a, all those things need to be re-examined. Another comment I wanted to add that you made me think about uh, the New Direction series for student leadership that you all do the interviews for. You just an episode ago did the ones on uh, the engineering leadership folks and the STEM fields, engineering in particular, the applied science fields have been terrific about you uh, citing all uh, uh, contributors to any research project once it gets in publication. There are so many, it's why APA has this thing about after like 15, you just list them with dot, dot, dot. But there, there well might be 10 or 12 cited authors on an engineering publication of any kind because of their recognition of the role of work in that project to some degree in the more involved or earlier cited, of course. But so we aren't the only ones that do a lot of co-work but it is newer in our fields. Yeah. It's an interesting comment. Cause like, why is it valued more so, you know, and I understand if you're like taking apart the human genome, like you might need 14 geneticists. Right. And like, so, you know, you look at nature or some of these top tier science journals, it's the norm, but why in the humanities and social sciences has it been somewhat frowned upon? And it's right. It's just a culture shift. Be the reviewer, right, Lauren. So, um, and, and shout out to V for, for that. So Susan, circling back to, the ILA, what would you say as you reflect on being someone who just received a, a lifetime achievement award from the association, like what, what has it meant to you personally and professionally? ILA has been very meaningful. It, it's probably the first association where I've truly seen the international presence be very vibrant. There are, are international people who come to NASPA and ACPA, my two primary associations, and I know some of them very well. But the uh, what, the people in ILA from Japan and New Zealand and Belgium and South Africa, and, I mean, the countries other than Western like Canada, uh, and where we have a lot of friends, have it's been very illuminating. I've really enjoyed that feature of ILA. But also, the first ILAs, I remember walking down the hall and there walking by me was Ron Heifetz and the next person that walks by is name another scholar. And it was like, this is amazing. This is like you could bring your old library and ask for autographs. And so I was very, very uh, encouraged and pleased to see the scholars of the field finding a place in it at ILA. I don't know to what degree that continues 
and the COVID experience of the last two and a half years of not being able to be in in-person meetings. We did, I did not go to any in-person anything. Uh, we didn't even leave our house to go for two and a half years, except to the doctor, I think. So um, ILA was quite a shock to me. That's the most people last weekend that I've been in a room with in two and a half years. And to speak at the Aspen thing before it started, the Aspen convening asked me to speak at their luncheon and to be in a room of a hundred people and giving a speech. I forgot how you do it. And I didn't know that I'd, I've never seen that many people in one room. It was quite interesting. So I am uh, pleased that ILA is a space where these kinds of convenings happen. It's thrilling to see the undergrads as well as the grad students there. And I think ILA still has work to do around um, member communities being meaningful places, communities of practice and places where you would find people really like you. Some of them have become quite strong, the women's group, I think, for example. Um, and Dan, you've, you have chaired one of those groups early on. And, uh, but there's still a challenge with how to really make them a, a workable identification group that then starts to develop a next level of complexity like joint projects and um, that result in programs and statements and resources. And that's been pretty uneven, I think. I was on the ILA board when we went through a very interesting transition from being at Maryland to becoming a 501c3 that in the United States then means a non-for-profit uh, standalone association. And that brings with it legal requirements like having a board of a, a, a board of trustees, a board of um, advisors, and that and other implications for funding and all of that. So that's when they broke away, quote, from Maryland. And there are good reasons to do that and, and set up headquarters over in Silver Spring. Um, so that was quite an interesting process. One of the dimensions of being a 501c3 is, is when there is a public membership meeting at an association, the members would be able to vote on policy and a variety of things that help direct that association. And ILA has been working on that piece, I think, to, even virtually to try to have member meetings that would help guide the direction of the association. But it's pretty much an executive uh, led association. So we depend on the executives to work in our best interests. And the membership hasn't quite found the kind of voice probably to do that directing. But all those things are evolutionary as ILA continues to um, be with us. You know, it's interesting you share that because I did attend one of those public meetings and it, it was pretty interesting. There was a lot of conversation and good contribution, but I, I don't think when I was attending, I was quite clear on kind of the purpose. And so you shedding that light makes a lot of sense now in hindsight after after attending. Um, so you you dropped a little, I ran into Ron Heifetz and at one point there was meetings. And is there like one memorable moment from a past ILA that stands out for you? Like, you know, we always talk about serendipity, is there something that maybe happened at ILA that sparked something else for you that, you know, when you went in, you didn't plan it, but this magical thing happened out of that? Hmm. Or just a really good story. <laughs> or just a really good story. Uh, you know, the, there's several things come to mind, although there's so many nice moments. You know, one of them would be to say, wow, there's so much that happens, the speakers and the to, to hear from ambassadors or uh, prime ministers of countries that got deposed out of office. And I mean, there's so many of those things. But I remember um, I, a man coming to ILA for the very first time and intentionally coming to be an active participant wanting to get engaged with international 
international leadership and bring this work more to his country. And that was Mickey Hagano from Japan, from Yoko University. And so Mickey made a point of meeting and had had uh, lovely English. So we were able to communicate. I have like zero Japanese, so I would have not been able to engage with him otherwise. And I appreciate that deficit on my part. But Mickey made a point to meet several people or wherever he was, he would turn to people around him to meet them. And he went, he came to one of the programs I put on and, and we got, we began talking. And then uh, Mickey said, I would like to invite, that was in London. And he learned about the work student affairs people were doing. He didn't know student affairs before that. His university had, had, a, had a dean of students, but that's a different function in the Japanese university system. So he was interested in that, thinking that would really benefit. That's where a lot of leadership work happens. He was all about advancing leadership, and that's where it happened. So he should go back and get more of those people doing this kind of work on his campus, as well as what he was doing in his business management role, teaching leadership courses, and had a wonderful program. So he invited me and Nance Lucas and Gama Perucci to come together as a team to uh, Ryoko uh, for a conference and institute they were going to be putting on. And uh, my role, Gama and Nance and I were all to talk about different aspects of leadership. My role in that changed by the time I got there. He said, not got there, but before we came, to say, Susan, would you present at this institute more on student affairs and what it is and how it and the co-curriculum informs students' education? And Nance and Gama did more of the leadership thing. So I did a whole thing on student affairs and what that was and the various important dimensions of that as it's evolved as a it's a unique contribution in the United States student affairs is there are two or three things the United States has done to contribute to world improvement in higher education one of them is the community college those didn't exist as a type of institution until they were developed in 1901 and then are all over the world another is student affairs as a concept and the co-curriculum as an intentional place of student learning. And then that's been adapted or adopted all over the world. So that's wonderful to see that occur. So meeting Mickey and what that gave me the opportunity to do. And now that Gama's deceased, what a memory that just came to mind because got to do that with Gama. And that was after I retired. We were already living here in Tampa um, area when that occurred. So that was probably 2014, 2015. Then Mickey contacts me and says, we have gotten permission from your publisher going through all the hoops you have to do to translate your exploring leadership book to Japanese. So he and uh, a colleague of his, uh, what an ordeal of love for them to do that, uh, did that complete translation and called me, emailed me on uh, numerous occasions where they would run into an idiom or a metaphor. They weren't quite sure what it meant. Like when something's as big as the state of Texas, what does that mean? You know, it's like, it was kind of fun. So meeting Mickey, good example of an international connection and the things that that became as joint projects and engagement are a wonderful example of what ILA can be. And lots of people have experiences like that where they've partnered with someone, they intentionally now do programs together, they do joint research, whatever. Yeah, no, I'm so glad you shared that story about Mickey because we, we we had him on the podcast what, about a year ago or something like that, maybe just a little bit more than that. And and I remember reaching out to you, Susan, in particular, when which I, I was really humble. That's probably one of the most humble I've ever been in my life when 
he when Mickey reached out to me after having invited you and Nance and and uh, and Gama and and had invited me to come out to the conference the following I think it was the following year oh, maybe great. two years oh, after and then after me Carrie Priest went out there and I know that That's they wonderful. were they had uh, resources to bring some folks out there but um, not only did you share your experience with because I was like what do I do how do I, I've never been an international like you know guest. Uh, Type of thing, and then you shared you shared some some uh, tidbits with me, but also said, "Hey, you should totally go on this tour, it's like you know, sightseeing tour," which I definitely did, and went to some of the places that that you had mentioned. And Mickey was, if he wasn't at an ILA, it was it felt like there was a big gap in the global evolution of of the field at the time because he was really really pushing the envelope in Japan. It was very evident exactly what what you're what you were sharing when I was over there that. You know, when folks were talking about student fairs and when I was talking to some of the students um, at, at Rikio when I was there and they were phenomenal and I was describing student organizations and things like that. And they looked at me kind of cross-eyed and said, you know, we they, they said, you know, we have action learning programs, but that's really it. Even things like intramurals were not part of the higher education system out there. And I have now met multiple times since then at ILA and other conferences, young professional, well, young new to their roles as student affairs professionals in, at Japanese universities. And I think it was a ripple effect. I, I think it was a ripple effect of, of your visit and, and folks that were going out to the U.S. and bringing some of this information back. Obviously, there are other countries that have contributed to the evolution of student affairs, but that willingness and openness to, to, to bring it to their campuses, to experiment, to see the benefits, I think, is, has made a difference in the type of programming and leadership development opportunities that they're, they're offering in Japan. And Mickey continues to be engaged, right? So... It's really interesting. So he's been, on the board. Yeah. he's been on the board of ILA too. That's so right. He really did jump in and he's made major contributions. Yeah. And and I, I met probably half of your 18 people that were there, Dan. <laughs> <laughs> Several that they were wonderful at your encouragement. Oh, thank about, you. Just go right up and meet people, you know. And they did that. I remember when the Christopher Newport and other young undergrad programs started mm. coming. And another when you asked me about highlights, another this is a very personal one, but another very personal highlight was this young woman who came up to me very quietly and she said, She said, I just want to tell you yours was the book I didn't sell back. <laughs> and I was just thrilled. I practically hugged her to death. I said that, you know, to be an author and get a compliment like that, I said, you don't know how big a compliment that is from a student to say you decided to keep that book. I thought that was great. Right. They didn't bring it back to Bill's bookstore, did they? No. Right. Long. So, oh my God. <laughs> So that's a Florida State reference for those that uh, are not in the know. So all right, we, we, we will go back to our inclusive track. So, um, but wait, wait, I have a Mickey comment. So oh, yeah, please. Mickey was on our show exactly a year to the date of this recording. Oh, really? It aired as a part of our international series. And one of the things I wanted to share was the biggest benefit. So this is my first ILA conference. Um, in person. I'd been online before, but, uh, and was planning to make it right when COVID hit. But the biggest benefit is learning from people that live in different countries. So I sat in on a women and gender studies conversation, and we're kind of debating some of the conversation we have in the U.S., and this woman sitting next to me in our small group was like, we don't even have this word in our language. And it really kind of like was humbling in that, um, you know, I kind of made the statement like we're fighting each other when we should be fighting the oppressor. But it, I wouldn't have thought about any of that if I hadn't been sitting next to this woman who she was from Canada, but she did a lot of work in Africa and the Middle East and other places. But to me, the biggest benefit was 
and, and it, I don't want to, it sounds simple, but I don't know that I often interact with folks from different countries on that level around leadership. And so when you talk about Mickey, he was hilarious. He was a great interview. Um, but those are the moments, those are the things that I feel like ILA just does really incredibly well. Yeah. Susan, one more thing, I think, around the conference experience. So, you know, you mentioned some of the different events that, that you're a part of and the different opportunities you had to, to interact with folks. So you were you were undoubtedly in the spotlight, right, at the conference because yes. of because of your honor. I remember joking with Julie Owen, who you mentioned, she said, we're calling this the Susan Comavez Love Fest Conference. Um, and so, <laughs> and so I'm just curious, like, how was this uh, the experience at the global conference last week different from other conferences that you've attended as a result? Oh my. Um, well, I, I'd have to say any average conference I've attended, well, instead of, I mean, instead of like the special, special one where I'm getting the big award have been wonderful. And partly for me, they're all, they have all been family reunions because there's so many of my former students who are now uh, professors doing research or vice presidents of universities and running and having leadership programs. And so I'm always having this wonderful generative kind of feeling and reunion with people I have loved and known for 30 or 40 years and seeing longtime friends like Denny Roberts and who, who was there especially early for some of these things because of the this award I was getting. But ILA has been a place to see those people like any good conference is over time where you form friendships. And it's wonderful to see folks. And that's been great. This one was unique in that some of the sessions were about me instead of me presenting in them. I mean, I did present, but there was that whole featured session because of being a legacy lifetime recipient that was to be designed around me and my work. And to have uh, John Dugan and uh, Julie Owen and Kathy Guthrie, all three who have played key roles in some of the collaborations over time and know me very well and uh, joined me in doing that. And then John and his team put together the, a video that they showed with uh, people sending in quotes and book covers flashing along on the screen. And so there was a lot of that that was, uh, uh, was really tremendous. I, I appreciated that. I it made me stand back in retrospect, and I certainly have realized these things, but and see the run through line in my life career. I mean, this is my 53rd year in higher education work post masters. Uh, so 53 years is a long time. And of course, you can accomplish a lot if you're active and doing things. But every every theme had people in it from the founding and beginning and some that of us that then did the middle parts and then people who came in and we went on to higher higher levels of involvement, like research on a theory that we built earlier. And it's wonderful to see the evolution of models and theories becoming research studies, becoming more applied practice, becoming books, becoming, and, and to see that evolution get talked about as a narrative, as a story, you know, that it's my story was really touching and very um, special to me. I think I got overwhelmed at one point with all the amazing things, this huge, remarkable group of people that I've been a part of have been able to do to create or co-create this field of uh, leadership education within the bigger field of leadership that also includes leadership scholarship and leadership practice, but leadership education with pedagogies, with learning outcomes, with assessment measures, with models and theories and uh, resources. And, and I'm really proud to say, as I look at the people that I know, is full of love and care and support and an ethic of practicing what we preach so that you need to be, if you're in leadership education, 
be willing to have students watch you and model you, and they are whether you like it or not. So you need to be very careful of how precious that trust is that students have put in us when they see us doing things to think that then is the way to do this. And it's a heavy responsibility, uh, but being more aware all the time of how we're all looked and modeled and watched um, is particularly important. So the experience of this week of having people, I mean, I, Kathy had a book made of all the New Direction series editors um, and uh, Dan, your comments were there, but to have people be saying what it meant that we worked together on this body of knowledge and uh, people brought cards and gifts and my goodness and hugs and then to have my family there. That was just the frosting on the cake to have um, certainly wonderful Ralph who comes has come to a lot of these things for a lot of years. You do that when you kind of get old and retired, you can go more places and he was able to be at these. But to have our son be there, and our daughter and, and son-in-law and our poor sick grandson who couldn't then be there and his mom who was home taking care of him. But um, it was great to have our daughter and son even speak at some of the retirement functions about what it was like for us to be family together through all this. Um, and I, how could I be more proud than to have my two kids say what they said about um, us in our relationship and what they observe. And um, they call some of my friends, their brothers and sisters too. You know, like Dugan's the second brother to Jeff. And I mean, it, there's no doubt that it's a family connection. So it was a marvelous experience. And that focus and that intensity of it uh, was pretty overwhelming. How beautiful, such a beautiful experience, beautiful way to capture words. Um, and I almost wonder too, I, I didn't hear their speeches, but I, I'm sure there was to some extent the, the balance of doing all of this good work in the field. And then also like coming home and momming, like Dan and I both have children. And so we know what it's like trying to juggle podcast recordings in class and I, gymnastics and basketball and soccer. And so at the end to really be lauded for both speaks um, just you know, kind of emulates what we already feel from your presence. Um, is there anything else you'd like to share with us that you haven't maybe shared already? Hmm. Well, not probably from, I guess another piece of my experience at ILA that many people wouldn't know about is ILA does an oral historian who's connected with IUPUI, the Tobias Center is a center at uh, Indiana University um, in, um, Indianapolis, and they do histories, uh, living history. So uh, their man that's there is aligned with ILA to do interviews of many of the legacy award winners. And I spent two hours with him Saturday morning and two hours Saturday afternoon. So four hours of that experience at ILA was him going back to childhood and talking about my family and parents and Girl Scouts and the decision, the involvement in college and how I got all the opportunities I did at Florida State. And boy, I went way back to the 1950 and 51 and the 60s when I was in high school, 60 to 64, when Kennedy was assassinated and when we saw Alan Shepard go up over our heads and John Glenn, because we're in Vero Beach, Florida, just south of Cape Canaveral. So saw the space shots go up. So that whole, that whole, situating that in the middle of ILA for me became it a lifetime thing for sure. It wasn't just my time since 1987 coming to Maryland and doing leadership research and those things. It was a lifetime of where did leadership come for me in my youth and where where did I begin, what were the issues that I was involved with as a as a young leader in the 60s and what was important that I see now I'm still doing. And so that was, it was like therapy, you know, it was like 
like life therapy to have this guy talk to me for four hours about all this. So that's another thing I would add. I mean, what a, what a gift that was to be guided by a professional oral historian in the aspects of your life that might have contributed to you being who you are. So it's like good qualitative research, but that's how can we bring that gift to more people? The telling of our stories. I've told my story about my life before, but that, that depth of that, that got at root causes and uh, transitions and, and difficult times and all that was really very profound. So the whole experience was deeper and richer than I expected at ILA. I, I, I was um, so pleased to know there would be a lot of love and care and people giving giving me all kinds of credit for things, some of which I probably hadn't even done. Uh, you know, like when someone comes up and says what you said that was so meaningful and you don't remember saying it, you know, or you're sure that was me. Uh, but there's wonderful things that were said. But this also turned it into then this very reflective time for me because it was a guided experience in the middle of a wonderful conference. Yeah, I'm thoughtful of of the ILA to 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 think about that value add, and and I wasn't aware of that that work that was being done at the at the Tobias Center, and yeah, we'd love to see dig into some of those archives and certainly learn more well, about what yours. What you can do, go on the ILA page and go to the Legacy Achievement Winners, yeah. and if I think it's if they're if the title's in blue, there is a recording, then you can hear, and it's not edited, so you would get into a two and a half hour, four hour recording of some kind. Uh, so I listened to Meg Wheatley's and Jean Lipman Bloom. Yeah. So you can go listen to some. How interesting. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that that nugget with us too. There's so many resources that I think sometimes we overlook that are that ILA puts out there. So yeah. Well, Susan, thank you so much again for joining us today. Congratulations on on your legacy honor. We definitely wish you the uh, wish you well and the best this year. And it was a joy meeting so many members of your family, both those that are related to you and those that have decided that they're related to you. <laughs> um, and just being a part of of, of uh, so many honors that, that you were given and and hearing folks share their thoughts about the impact you made on uh, on their lives and their careers. So thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you. Thank you both. Do you connect with leadership educators virtually? Please follow us on social media. Search the Leadership Educator Podcast on LinkedIn to find our page. And find us on Twitter at Lead Educator Pod for episode release information, show notes, and upcoming events. You can connect with me on Twitter at Dr. Underscore Leadership. And Lauren is at M-R-S-L-A-U-R-J-B. That's Miss Laura JB. You can find the episodes wherever podcasts are available. We also encourage you to please subscribe at theleadershipeducator.com and rate us five stars as the more you rate us, the easier it is for others to find us. We'd like to thank the James M. Cox Jr. Institute for Journalism, Innovation, Management, and Leadership within the Grady College of Journalism and Mass Communication at the University of Georgia. The support was facilitated by Dr. Keith Herndon, William S. Morris Chair in News Strategy and Management. And our wonderful theme music was composed, performed, and mixed by Dr. Matt White, trumpeter, composer, and associate professor and chair of jazz studies at the University of South Carolina. Check him out at mattwhitejazz.com. Matt, thank you so much for sharing your musical genius with our audience. And finally, we are grateful for the support of two professional associations that are destinations for leadership educators, the Association of Leadership Educators and the International Leadership Association. ALE, which funded the start of the podcast, continues to promote our mission of continuing conversations with leadership professionals. Check out all that ALE has to offer at leadershipeducators.org. 
The global reach of the ILA has helped us to expand our listenership beyond our original borders. Check out the ILA's programs and resources at ilaglobalnetwork.org.